Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Peninsula Bible Church Cupertino. As we enter into worship this morning, we start with our call to worship. And this morning, we are going to um, do our call together, um, following the prompts on the screen. Um, And I just invite you, as we say these words, as we uh, proclaim this truth about who our God is, that his love endures forever, um, allow that just to resonate in your hearts and your minds. Um, allow that to be the foundation as we go and, and praise our God this morning. So will you read with me? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His love endures forever. Indeed it does. Well, let's pray together this morning. God, it is good to be here worshiping together as your people. And Lord, as we um, sit on the um, tales of the Easter celebration, Lord, reveling in the resurrection of what you've done for us, God, um, Allow us just to take a moment um, to reflect on your goodness, God, of the ways you provide for us, um, of how deeply you love us, God, uh, more than we could ever know or imagine. Lord, we thank you that you meet us um, in every stage and situation of life, um, whether we are joyful and rejoicing, um, or mourning or grieving, God, or confused and lost, Lord. You, um, our good shepherd, are with us, God. So as we hear your truth this morning, as we come to your table, um, as we just sit um, and revel in the goodness that you, our God, are a humble servant um, who pours out his love for us. Um, God, may we take that and go into our days and our weeks um, and love the people around us, Lord. Uh, Maybe we be filled with your spirit Lord, to go out um, and to proclaim your love and your goodness in this world um, that needs it too. So God, I just pray that you would fill us this morning, that you would encourage our hearts, um, that you would bind us together um, in unity um, and grace for one another because of who you are. So we love you, Lord, in your good and holy name. Amen. All right. Well, thank you, Christine. And good morning. My name is Sean Reese, I'm one of the pastors here, if you don't know me, and uh, we are entering back into the Gospel of John this morning. As many of you know, we've been working our way through John for a couple of years now, uh, which I don't mind, I hope you don't mind either, um, but we come now um, to John 13. And um, as you can see, I've been calling our study, Come and See. Because in the Gospel of John, we are invited to come and see who this Jesus is. And today, we see Jesus as the foot-washing Lord. So let's pray. Well, Father, as we... uh, Enter this holy ground today. We bow the knees of our heart in humility. 
And we ask that your spirit would come and help us see Jesus more clearly this morning. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we are beginning again in chapter 13. Chapter 13 begins the second half of the Gospel of John. So the first half of the Gospel of John is chapters 1 to 12, and essentially they detail Jesus' public mission, um, his public ministry. And it's typically, those 12 chapters are typically called the Book of Signs. Chapter 13 begins the second half of John and is typically called the Book of Glory. But chapter 13 also begins what has been been traditionally called the Upper Room Discourse. Um, And it begins on the night before Jesus goes to the cross. So even though we celebrate Easter last week, we're going back now in John to before Easter Sunday and just before the cross. So Jesus gathers his small group of disciples into a room in somewhere in downtown Jerusalem to give them a final teaching. For one last time, Jesus wants to remind his followers what he's all about, all the key points of his ministry. But in doing so, this final discourse will also prepare the disciples for living life without him physically. And for this reason, it applies to us as well. This final teaching describes the space in which we follow Jesus in the absence of his physical presence. And how will Jesus begin this final teaching? He begins by washing his disciples' feet. As Becca said, you should have picked up one of these on the way in, and uh, you can wave them throughout the sermon if you don't like what I say. Um, But they are nice and bright, uh, so hopefully you will take them with you and, and put them somewhere to remind you of this astonishing moment. Because it is astonishing. I don't think we understand the gravity of what happens on that night. It is that astonishing. So I invite you into our text this morning, John 13, where we begin to walk with those first disciples through this upper room discourse. The noise of the world fades into the background, and the stillness of an intimate dinner comes into view, and we are on holy ground. So, chapter 13, and we're just going to read verse 1 here. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
So we're going to stop right there. And I, I just, I want to set the full context of this moment for you. And I want to explain five points of context for you. Okay? So first of all, John once again ties his story to a feast, as he did, if you remember, back in the first 12 chapters. Almost everything Jesus did in the first 12 chapters is tied to a feast. This moment is tied to the Passover feast, the third one in this gospel. Now, secondly, as this story hits the third Passover, John narrates in one verse the love of Jesus. Jesus loves his own and will love his own forever. Jesus is the great lover. Jesus loves me, this I know. He's the great lover. And to follow him means to enter into an eternity of love. That's pretty inviting, isn't it? Now, whereas light and life were key themes in the first 12 chapters, love becomes the main, really the main theme of the upper room discourse. It's used 31 times throughout this final discourse. Thirdly, John also tells us that Jesus knows his hour has come. His hour refers to the crucifixion. Throughout the gospel so far, we've been told it's not his hour. His hour has not come. It's not come. It's not come. Well, it's finally here. And Jesus knows it. The hour of the crucifixion has come. And that's why he's gathered his disciples into this upper room. In verse 3, which we will read in just a moment, John also tells us that Jesus knows he has come from God and is going back to God. So Jesus comes into this upper room knowing much, while the disciples come into this upper room not knowing much at all. Which leads us to the fourth point. The disciples come into that upper room not knowing the nature of Jesus' kingdom. As has been clear throughout the entire gospel, these disciples enter that room that night thinking Jesus is going to become a political king. They enter that room um, with the thought in their minds that Jesus is going to give them a battle plan for destroying the Romans. That's how they enter that room that night. That Jesus is going to tell them how they're going to take out the bad guys. <laughs> and we also know from the Gospel of Luke that the disciples, as they gather for this meal... They were engaged in a dispute about which of them was going to be the greatest. <laughs> which of them was going to be the greatest in this upcoming kingdom of, of Jesus? So as they enter that room, 
The disciples' imaginations are alive with um, palaces and uh, with dreams of palaces and crowns and thrones and power and glory. And when that's your dream, no one would ever think of washing another person's feet. No one, except Lord Jesus. And finally, just a little bit about the cultural context for that night. We have to keep in mind that at that time, there were no blacktop roads. There were no concrete sidewalks. Everything was dirt, which means if it was dry, there was dust over everything. And if it was wet, there was mud over everything. And everyone walked around with open-toed sandals. Essentially just a sole that's tied onto the bottom of the feet. Okay, flip-flops, really. So this meant that every time you walked outside, your feet either became covered with dust or covered with mud. Now because of this, in that time period, inside the front door of most homes, you would find a basin of water and a towel. And a servant would greet each, greet each guest and as an act of hospitality would wash their feet. Now what is incredible is that this task was so degrading, Jewish servants weren't required to do it. And Jewish servants even looked down on Gentile servants because they did it. Isn't that amazing? Now on that night in the upper room, it becomes clear that there is no servant there to wash feet. So in light of all of that context, let's read this upside down, inside out story, beginning in verse two. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Excuse me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. 
When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? That question applies to us as well. Do we really understand what Jesus has done here? Do we understand the gravity of this scene? So during supper, Jesus rises up, takes off his outer garments, and proceeds to wash and dry the feet of his disciples. Now you know, of course, this is no isolated event. What he did that evening summarized in one event what he had done throughout his entire life. <clears throat> Excuse me. Serve people. And in doing so, Jesus defines what lordship really is. See, Jesus turns the idea of lordship upside down and inside out, at least from a human perspective. See, his actions that night reveal his understanding of what it means to be Lord. From a, from a human perspective, washing feet is beneath the dignity of a Lord. From a human perspective, it's a great contradiction. Think about it. In that time, you know the common saying was, Caesar is Lord. Can you imagine Caesar getting on his hands and feet and washing his servants' feet? No. From a human perspective, it's a great contradiction. No one would ever carry out the menial task of washing someone else's feet. No one, except Lord Jesus. Do we understand what has just happened? This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. And he washes feet. Jesus' actions that night reveal that what he does is not a contradiction as we would see it. It is because he is Lord that he does what he does. Not in spite of being Lord, but because he is Lord. Remember, John has emphasized at the beginning of this scene that Jesus knows a lot. He knows that he is from God and was going back to God. See, John wants us to know that Jesus really knows who he is. Jesus is not confused here. He knows he's come from the Father. He knows that the Father has given all things into his hands, and he knows that he's going back to the Father. Jesus knows he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He knows who he is. Remember, back in chapter 5, he said he only does 
what he sees his father do. He only does what he sees his father do. And he has watched his father serve his good creation since the beginning of time. And now he's simply doing what he's watched his father do since the beginning of time. He is living out what it truly means to be Lord of the universe. He knows who he is. And knowing who he is, he rose up, laid aside, took up, wrapped around, washed, and put on again. See, Jesus' actions that night are not a contradiction. They are a revelation of the living God. A revelation of the living God, the Lord of lords. Yes, God is good. And his love endures forever. Lordship has been defined around a basin and a towel. To be Lord means to wash feet. Leslie Newbegin says it like this. This is not just an enacted lesson in humility. Peter could have understood that. The foot washing is a sign of that ultimate subversion of all human power and authority which took place when Jesus was crucified. In that act of crucifixion, the wisdom of the world was shown to be folly and the powers of the world were disarmed. But flesh and blood, ordinary human nature is in principle incapable of understanding this. At that moment, as a man that he is, Peter cannot understand. After all, how can the natural human recognize the supreme God in the stooping figure of a servant clad only in a loincloth? Indeed, Peter doesn't understand what's happening. In fact, he's horrified. He can't believe his eyes. In his pride, he cries out, never shall you wash my feet, Lord. Notice he's giving orders to Jesus at that moment. Oops. (laughs) Those words have the same tone as when Jesus and his disciples are at Caesarea Philippi in the other gospels. You remember this scene? There Jesus declares he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And Peter rebukes Jesus saying, no way, Lord. Remember what Jesus says? Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In the same way, in that upper room, Peter wants to fit Jesus into the human idea of lordship. His mind is set on human concerns. Peter sees the great contradiction, as we do. Lords don't wash feet. Kings don't wash feet. The God of the universe doesn't wash feet. Wrong, Peter. Lords and kings do wash feet. 
the God of the universe washes feet. What Jesus does, according to Jesus, is altogether normal for the living God. Well, then um, Jesus responds to Peter by saying, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, with this statement, we get the entire gospel in one short sentence. This act and these words point us to the cleansing found at the cross. But, but we've actually been pointed to the cross already by John's verbs. See, the two verbs in verse 4, laid aside and took up, point us to the cross through Jesus as the good shepherd. Because these two verbs are repeatedly used in chapter 10 in the good shepherd discourse. And they're used for the good shepherd laying down his life and taking up again. John is pointing us to Good Friday here. So Jesus' reply to Peter is essentially this. Peter, if you do not let me stoop down to act on your behalf to cleanse you, you can have no fellowship with me. You cannot participate in my kingdom. Peter, something needs to happen to you and for you by me. And unless I do it, you can have no part with me. That something is, of course, the cross. The ultimate act of self-emptying love. The ultimate act of stooping down. That once-for-all act which cleanses all of us from our sins. And unless Peter lets Jesus lay down his life, he remains in the darkness of his sin and shame. That's ultimately what the foot washing points to. Jesus serving all of us by laying down his life on the cross. Our only hope. Augustine said it well, proud man would have died had not a lowly God found him. But then in verse 9, impulsive Peter still without understanding, overreacts, saying, Lord, not just my feet, but also my hands and my head. <laughs> and Jesus clarifies, this, the one who is bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet. But he is completely clean, and you are clean. So Jesus here seems to be changing the metaphor a bit. Before a dinner like this, people would have taken baths. So after walking through the dirty streets, only their feet would have become dirty. So the washing of Peter's feet points to the cleansing found on the cross. Nothing else needs to be done to be cleansed. Everyone who believes in Jesus is clean. However, as we walk through our world, 
We fall into sin and darkness, don't we? We get our feet dirty, don't we? We've been cleansed, but we still get splattered with dust and mud, don't we? So we need to keep coming back. We need to keep coming back. We need to keep coming back to the Lord in repentance and confession to get our feet washed again. Now that's what the bread of life discourse back in chapter six was all about. In Jesus' words, he tells us, keep coming to me, keep believing in me as the bread of life. In other words, as the Israelites in the wilderness had to gather manna every day, so Jesus says, keep coming to me, keep believing in me every day. Verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Well, here we see how to become people of the Tao. Did you hear what Jesus said here? If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Well, that's not what we would have expected, is it? What we would have expected is something like this. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash my feet. Isn't that what we would have expected there? But if he would have said that, the disciples would have fought each other to be first in line. And the old order of being the greatest would have stayed in effect. Whoever would have been first in line would have been the greatest. If he'd have said that and I'd have been here that night, I'd have elbowed every one of you out of the way. I'd have been first in line. No one would have gotten in front of me because I owe Jesus so much. I would have made sure I was first in line. But Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say, wash my feet. He says, wash one another's feet. Wash your neighbor's feet. I think Newbegin captures it best again. He says it like this. Jesus has laid aside his life for us all. And the great debt we owe to him is to be discharged by our subjection to our neighbor in loving service. And here's the line that I have on the screen. Our neighbor is the appointed agent authorized to receive what we owe the master. 
our neighbor, is the appointed agent authorized to receive what we owe Jesus. Wash one another's feet. Serve your neighbor. Now, can you imagine what's going on in the minds of the disciples at night? Remember, they're very different people from very different backgrounds. They have very different views of life. They have very different, uh, probably, views of Jesus. Um, they, they're very diverse, probably like many of us here today. But imagine this. Matthew, the tax collector, washing the feet of Simon the Zealot. Matthew works for the Romans. He collects taxes for the bad guys. And Simon is a zealot. He's a radical revolutionary who is looking to take out the bad guys. Both have been called to follow Jesus. Both have had their feet washed by Jesus. Matthew, the tax collector, is now the appointed agent authorized to receive what Simon the Zealot owes Jesus. And Simon the Zealot is the appointed agent authorized to receive what Matthew owes Jesus. This is simply huge, isn't it? This is what turns the world upside down and inside out, doesn't it? And Jesus says, blessed are you if you do this. Blessed are you if you serve your neighbor. So let's fast forward 2,000 years. My wife is the appointed agent authorized to receive what I owe Jesus. I wash his feet by washing hers. I lay my life down for her, for him, by laying it down for her. My children are the authorized, uh, the appointed agents authorized to receive what I owe Jesus. I wash his feet by washing their feet. I lay my, my life down for him by laying it down for them. You all are the appointed agents authorized to receive what I owe Jesus. I wash his feet by washing yours. I lay my life down for him by laying it down for you. My neighbors in Campbell, California <laughs> are the appointed agents authorized to receive what I owe Jesus. I wash his feet by washing theirs. I lay down my life for him by laying it down for them. And on and on it goes. And discipleship has been defined. And it's been defined around a basin and a towel. This is to be people of the towel.
Can you imagine how the world would change if Jesus' followers lived like this? In a culture that encourages division from neighbor, in a culture which has normalized antagonism toward neighbor, in a culture where everyone wants to be the greatest, we don't follow the culture. We follow the foot-washing Lord. So what would it look like practically for you to be people of the Tao this week and moving forward? Verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. Literally, I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Well, all was not well that night. Someone else was present, the devil. John had already told us that in verse two. And the devil found a willing partner in Judas. We'll talk more about Judas in two, week time, in two weeks' time. But Jesus, once again, knows. He knows someone will lift their heel against him. That's Psalm 41. But he is also in control of this situation, right? He's no, he's no victim, He's not going to the cross as a victim. And so he assures his disciples that he has chosen them. They're not here by accident, just like you're not here by accident. And he assures them he will send them as his representatives. And when the cross takes place, for them it's tomorrow. It's within 24 hours. He assures them that they will finally know. <laughs> they will finally know he is the great I am. So the Tao, the Tao teaches us three things, I think, in this text. The Tao defines lordship for us. Lordship actually means service. The Tao defines discipleship for us. To follow Jesus means our neighbors are the appointed agents authorized to receive what we owe Jesus. And the Tao assures us Jesus doesn't choose by accident. He knows who's he, who he has chosen and he sends his chosen ones And the Tao reminds us and assures us that he is the great I am. Amen.
Well, that brings us to the table today. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up on stage. And our servers, I'm going to invite over to the corner. So we come to the table today celebrating a God who serves us. In that upper room that night, Jesus ate a meal with his disciples and he instituted communion. John doesn't record the words of institution. Instead, he gives us this moment, the washing of the feet. Why? Because we can celebrate communion every day of our lives, but if we don't serve our neighbor, we don't actually understand what communion means. Jesus has served us by laying his life down for us on the cross. So if we understand that moment, then we will recognize that our neighbor is the appointed agent authorized to receive what we owe him. Now receive this benediction. As you go, remember what the foot-washing Lord has done for you. He loved you, and he laid down his life for you. And in response, empowered by the Spirit, follow his lead in serving others because your neighbor is the appointed agent authorized to receive what you owe him. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.